Hello, hello, and welcome to DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and this week on the podcast, the fact that it's the week of Thanksgiving was not lost on me. And of course, when this video actually comes out, you're going to say, Dan, this is not the week of Thanksgiving because you were three days late putting the episode out. And I have an excuse for that if you absolutely want to hear it. It's that my computer chair of two years decided that one of the legs was just going to break right off. So with not having a chair to sit on to record the episode, that was kind of a problem. But thankfully, the problem has been corrected and we have a new chair. So in the spirit of Thanksgiving or late Thanksgiving, I wanted to talk about a record that I could reasonably describe as a feast. And what's part of a good feast? Of course, it has to have certain staples, right? It needs to try a few new things, but ultimately succeed in building off of the past successes of certain food and flavor combinations so that it can have that filling and maybe even a little bit dizzying effect after you're done eating. And of course, I think the same thing's true about music. While at certain times of the year, I do want to indulge in new flavors and expand my musical palette, but there are certain parts of the year that demand the tradition be followed. And I have certain expectations that only certain albums are going to be able to meet. So in that spirit, I want to talk about a record that I've been returning to the table for for over 20 years. And that record is Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child by Norma Jean. So I'm going to break my analysis down into five parts and present them like a five-course meal. Course one will be my original impression and history with the album. Course number two will be musicianship and originality. Course number three will be emotional impact. Course number four will be personal significance or what I got out of the album. And course number five, cultural significance and lasting impact. But before I serve the first course, I just want to say real quick that whether you're watching this or listening to this, please make sure to subscribe to the channel or the podcast if you like this episode. If you want to reach out to me or talk about anything, you can at dftdungeon at gmail.com. And I personally want to thank you if you're still engaged at this point in the podcast because it means that I successfully kept you after the 30-second drop-off point. That said, it's dinner time. Course 1, Original Impressions and History. On Saturday, September 28th, 2002, my parents took a 16-year-old Daniel Terry to a Christian bookstore called One Way Books in order for me to buy some cheesy Christian-themed t-shirts because I actually wanted them because the kids in my youth group had them and I wanted to be cool like they were. And they must have been running some kind of sale at that time because I bought a whole bunch of shirts and then ended up going under budget by about $40 which then turned my attention towards their tiny music section that they had in the back of the store. And after taking a considerable amount of time searching through the hundred or so CDs that I had begged my parents if we could use the rest of the money to buy three CDs. One of them was The Changing of Times by Under Oath. The second one was Living Sacrifices Conceived in Fire. And the third one was Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child by Norma Jean. And when I think about that day all these years later, it's funny how I had no clue how influential of a purchase that really was. I mean, it was one hell of a starter kit, and I still hold all three of those albums in pretty high esteem to this day. And I'm also thankful that this wasn't one of the days where my parents got super curious about what kind of music I'd bought and asked me to pop it in for the drive home. 
Instead, I just sat there in silence, carefully removing the plastic from each CD. Bless the Martyr was probably the most interesting CD to look at out of all three, because instead of having like the blood and guts imagery that you'd expect from a Christian metalcore band, Norma Jean opted for a more unsettling cover image of this little girl smiling super creepily in some kind of like sepia-soaked ancient photograph. The liner notes were largely the same, full of creepy old-timey photos of this house that looks like it came right out of the Great Depression. And the main reason I would even crack open a CD booklet at that age was to check out the lyrics. Because at the time, I was super paranoid that even though I'd bought an album at a Christian bookstore and it was released on a Christian label, that somehow it might have been some kind of great deception and the band was not actually a Christian band or they were trying to trick everybody. And I'm sad to report that the world is still kind of full of people who think that way, but... Checking out the lyrics isn't a very easy task on this album because they're definitely 100% there, but they're printed on dark ink on a dark background. So they're nearly impossible to read. And I remember staying up a ton of nights with a flashlight, trying my hardest to transcribe every word into a notebook that I had sitting there. And something I noticed, though, a few years ago, I bought a newer copy of Bless the Martyr at a thrift store. And when looking at the liner notes, I noticed that the faint printed lyrics that were in the original booklet were just gone. Like, it must have been some kind of weird afterthought. But I remember that car ride home seeming like it took forever, even though it was approximately about 25 minutes or so. But when you're a teenager and you have something really cool in your hands that you can see but not fully experience, it can make minutes seem like hours. And when I finally did get home, I popped the CD into my Sony Discman and I flopped back on my waterbed and hit the play button. Now, this is one of those rare cases in my mid-teens where I actually shot up in my bed and just sat there trying to make sense of what I was hearing. To say that Norma Jean's particular brand of chaos shocked my system is a massive understatement. You have to understand that at that time, I had only been listening to heavier music for a short while. I was just getting familiar with stuff like Dead Poetic and Under Oath, and I still maintained that Project 86's Drawing Black Lines album was the heaviest album in the world. And I mean, it still is, just not quite in this particular way. And so I wasn't used to hearing so much feedback and aggression. See, before that moment, I was kind of used to music that was intended to be traditionally pleasing to the listener, right? You know, maybe some melody or some kind of dopamine encouraging repetition that I would hopefully get stuck in my brain. And this record was nothing like that on the first listen. It almost felt like the band was trying to torment me personally and assault me with everything that they had. The first song, The Entire World Is Counting On Me and They Didn't Even Know It, has this downright agonizing moment at one minute and 30 seconds that almost caused me to chuck the CD right then and there. Maybe I had found something that was just a little bit too hard, too extreme. And I'll be totally honest here. My 16-year-old brain almost just couldn't take it, but my curiosity was still the stronger force in the room, so I pressed on. And by the time I got to the end of Organized Beyond Recognition, almost a half hour later, 
I was still sitting upright in my bed, and I swear, I swear that I was sweating. I'm probably remembering it wrong, but it definitely seems like I must have been sweating because I had never experienced anything like that in my life before that point. I was curious though, and after dinner that night, I listened to it again, and then I listened to it again right before going to bed. And I still couldn't really make heads or tails of it, but I knew that I'd stumbled onto something that was going to change the way that I looked at music forever. So the next morning, my friend Buddy pulled up to the house to pick me up for school because I was in, still in high school, and I had to show him the album. And now Buddy and I had just gotten off of this long period of listening to just new metal and had just started dabbling into metalcore a little bit. We had just dipped our toes into the shallow end of the pool. So in ritualistic fashion, I just had to show Buddy the record that I'd bought the night before. He pops the CD in and we make it about two minutes into the entire world is counting on me and they don't even know it before Buddy with a crinkled brow and a strain on his face hit the skip track button into face to face. Is it face to face or is it face face? Let me know. And the way that song opens up is just a wild howl and more chaos. And he looked just as afflicted as he did on the first song. And I kept looking over at him and trying to break the tension. I hit the skip button into Memphis will be laid to waste. Another huge scream in the face, and we both needed to take a break. I remember him looking at me and going, yeah, dude, see, you can't handle it either. And we ended up listening to something else on the way to school. Now, that's my first impression of Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child by Norma Jean, but you might be wondering how a Christian youth group kid in 2002 would ever find an album like this in the first place. And even if I did, why would I even be interested in it? So we're going to have to talk about the history of Norma Jean for a little bit. See, back in 1997, in or around Douglasville, Georgia, a new metal band with some hardcore influences was formed by a gentleman named Josh Scogan with friends Scotty Henry, Chris Day, and Daniel Davison. And by 1999, they had been a band long enough to record a split CD with a band called Travail and that split came out on Pluto Records. This recording would eventually come to be known as the 5 EP. And eventually the band would go on to sign a deal with Solid State Records in Seattle. Solid State was a sub-label to Tooth & Nail Records and focused primarily on hardcore and extreme metal bands in the Christian music industry, which was probably really weird back in 2001. Doesn't seem weird now, but back then it was kind of different. And it was on Solid State that the band would release their debut and only album as Ludacris. It was called Throwing Myself. And it was produced by Andre Wall and Jesse Smith, the former drummer of Zayo. See, I knew I'd probably find a reason to mention Zayo in this episode. And Throwing Myself was a combination of the band's original new metal sound with primarily higher-pitched hardcore screaming as the main vocals. And it's definitely a weird listen, but I would highly encourage you to check it out if you can. It's like somewhat unpredictable new metal with a lot of screaming mixed in with these more like drawn out Deftones-ish guitar passages. And all of it just has this overproduced computerish quality to it. Hard for me to explain. It's like it's like taking an image of a video game and just putting like a Vaseline filter over it. It was still good. It was still fun to listen to, but there just was something a little bit off about it. Just something very, very compressed. 
Shortly after putting out Throwing Myself, the band decided to change their name to Norma Jean, which they named after the real name of actress Marilyn Monroe. And apparently the band also discovered after the fact that Norma means patterns and Jean means God's grace and mercy. And it was with this lineup that the band recorded Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child. I ended up hearing about the band via Solid State's website sometime in early 2002 and always being curious about how the band sounded because to me, they just had a really cool name. And Solid State had been selling heavy music to Christian youth group kids since 1997. And what started off as a grassroots movement would eventually turn into one of the oddest successes in underground music. But I'll talk more about that later because now it's time for the second course of this meal. Course two, musicianship and originality. Now, this is probably the only reason that you guys are actually here. You know, for me to talk about the album itself and try to describe something that is ultimately indescribable without hearing it yourself. And the easiest and laziest way to describe it is that Norma Jean on Bless the Martyr, Kiss the Child sounds like they borrowed heavily from bands like Botch, Coalesce, and Dead Guy to create a mathcore record for the Christian market. And while technically this is true, it's vastly underselling what it is. And if mathcore isn't the right word for it, I apologize in advance, and I assume that you guys will all point it out to me in the comments. I'd say that while I hear influences from those bands on this record, that was not super relevant to me when I first heard it, because as I described earlier, I'd never heard this style of music before. A Christian youth group kid isn't gonna know about Dead Guy or Botch or Converge. That was all secular music, and therefore it was off limits to me until a little bit later down the road. And I'd even go as far as to say that I would have never even checked out those bands if it wasn't for being inspired to do so by Norma Jean. Music discovery and appreciation aren't always linear, despite what people on internet forums in the mid-2000s might tell you. We all have to start somewhere, and so I want to use this course of our meal to discuss what I actually hear on this album instead of just endlessly making comparisons to other musical works. The first thing I want to talk about on this album are the drums, and that's for two reasons. Number one, the drums are literally the first thing you hear when you hit play. Just a small drum intro followed by Josh's overpowering screams. And the second reason is because they just sound incredible. I've listened to so many heavy albums over the years, and as time ticks by, I've almost forgotten what a guy sitting in a room playing drums actually sounds like. Now, I'm not a drummer, so I'm going to be kind of brief here, but the way you can hear each hit sort of ring out and bounce off of the other surfaces in the room gives this album a really visceral sense of immersion. If you close your eyes and listen with headphones, it's very easy to tell yourself that you're in the same room as the band. Just like a live show, the drums are an overwhelming force that the rest of the band has the task of trying to match in intensity. And it's a task that I think that the rest of the band accomplishes pretty well. I think a lot of the reason for the live sound is that according to the liner notes of the CD, this album was recorded live in a studio and that no computers were used in the recording, which is pretty impressive considering how crisp everything sounds, despite the music being super raw. That feedback ringing out from the guitar has almost an ethereal quality to it. And the bass is even audible, which is an impressive feat in and of itself. Even Josh's vocals capture the same feeling, clear but not overpowering unless it needs to be. 
He sounds like he's screaming through a mic'd guitar amp, which adds this subtle, almost imperceptible distortion to his voice, which makes the vocal gymnastics that he performs on this album all the more impressive. And the perfect mix I would credit mostly to Killswitch Engage's Adam D, who produced this album. When I think of Adam D, my mind immediately jumps to how clean and clear his production style is, and I think this album is an interesting juxtaposition of Adam's perfectionist and Norma Jean's desire to sound as authentically rock and roll as possible. It really had a lightning in a bottle effect on this record. Now, if you'll indulge me for a little while, I'm going to attempt a bit of an album run through, if you will, to try to describe how this record flows. And this sweet boy begins with the previously mentioned, the entire world is counting on me and they don't even know it, which starts off hyper aggressive and chaotic. This is Norma Jean putting their best foot forward, almost as a way of instantly dispelling any comparisons to the band's previous incarnation. And they waste no time in letting you know that this is not throwing myself to Electric Boogaloo. Josh's vocals are much deeper and have an aggressive attack that he didn't use before. Chaotic, feedback-soaked riffs paint this mental picture of dizziness, confusion, blacking out, of points of light crossing all around you, and finally, the feeling of slamming into multiple brick walls. And that's only the first song. Face to Face doesn't let you breathe at all. Josh opens it up with a chaotic scream before slamming into more feedback, more screams, and this is Norma Jean firing on all cylinders. A groove creeps its way in, making some semblance of a verse. I guess we could call it a verse. And this breaks apart and reforms several times until the 1 minute 23 second mark where the band pauses for literally one second and Josh emits a warning howl before the band transitions into a blistering breakdown with Josh screaming over and over again, she simply will not die. Following this, the band does one final quote-unquote verse before the song breaks apart again and then ends in a slower-paced, more epic fashion. And you get about three seconds to breathe until Memphis Will Be Laid to Waste begins. And this is another song that starts off with a warning scream. Memphis is really where things start to get interesting, though. After the initial flurry, the song kind of settles into a teasing collection of heavy riffs before dropping out completely into a more melodic and brooding section with these haunting background vocals weaving in and out. This is probably the closest you're going to get to clean vocals on this album. The song kind of meanders here for about a minute until the band plays its first semi-sweet melodic riff. And don't blink or you might miss it because the pre-game breakdown hits with Josh screaming, now you're doing the waltz with your murderer over and over again, even overlapping himself in several places because just because you may not have used computers does not prevent you from, you know, indulging in a little bit of overdub from time to time. And, you know, I actually had the pleasure of playing this song live with a band one time, and I remember getting really frustrated at this part because... I couldn't actually replicate how the album sounded without having a second vocalist. And since I'm such an egomaniac, I really wasn't going to have a second vocalist come up. It's all me. The breakdown levels out and then transitions into a second breakdown with Josh screaming, mediocrity is the killer. And then the tension resolves with Josh screaming, you find yourself helpless. Christ is not a fashion fleeting away. See, I told you they were a Christian band, mom. <laughs> The tension starts building again right after this until it finally reaches a boiling point and then seemingly out of nowhere, Aaron Weiss from Me Without You jumps in and vomits out nonsensical line after nonsensical line while Josh screams fashion over and over again behind him. And it is truly one of the most significant moments in the history of Christian heavy music.
Creating something out of nothing only to destroy it is up next, and I honestly feel sorry for it. Not because it's a bad Norma Jean song, it's actually a really good one, but it's the song that has to follow up Memphis Will Be Laid to Waste. The song opens up with a drum and bass intro, but not the kind you're probably thinking. And it doesn't take long before the song drops into a more relaxed pace that we haven't really seen on this album yet. And honestly, this is the most melodic the band has been on the album so far. It's an interesting sequencing choice to have a more melodic song at this point, considering what's about to happen on the next song. And this song contains my favorite Norma Jean one-liner of all time, like bringing a knife to a gunfight. And the breakdown that goes with it isn't too bad either. The one-liners on this album are some of the first lyrics that you're actually going to pick up, because as we established earlier, the lyrics in the booklet are nearly impossible to actually read. And at four and a half minutes into the song, it sounds like it's over, but then they decide to replay the intro to the song for some unknown reason. But this time it goes on a little bit longer, and it's eventually overtaken by a bunch of guitar feedback and then like some barely audible talking, which leads to the fifth song. And this is probably the most bold statement on the album so far. For whatever reason, Norma Jean felt that on the fifth song, they would drop a 15-minute nearly instrumental epic on us in the form of pretty soon, I don't know what, but something is going to happen. So if you're a confirmed wimp bag like I was the first time hearing this record and you find the first four songs were a little bit too hard for you, then this slow burn of a song is going to give you that breathing room that you may have been desperately craving. The song slowly builds and builds in intensity with densely repetitive riffs as you hear loud guitar feedback starting to build up behind it. This sort of nervous and tension-inducing buildup goes on for a solid six minutes before Josh starts screaming over it. And interestingly, this is probably the most that Norma Jean sounds like Ludacris on this album. This song provides a good mix of Norma Jean's signature mood setting with these blunt explosions of energy and some much-needed doses of epic-tinged melodic riffs. And there's a really moody melodic section at 9 minutes 45 seconds that sounds like something you'd hear on a Training for Utopia album. And overall, it's a super bold choice and an enjoyable song. But if I'm being honest, sometimes I find myself skipping it entirely when I'm driving to work so that I can listen to all of the other songs on one trip. And I truly hope that that song gave you enough time to catch your breath because the shotgun message takes no prisoners. Clocking in at just 1 minute and 36 seconds, the shotgun message blasts out a concentrated dose of feedback-soaked riffs, chugs, and unhinged screams. If you had to describe this record in less than two minutes, just stop talking and play this song. I'm Stabbed by Grace and Slinging Blood is also a really cool one-liner. Up next, sometimes it's our mistakes that make for the greatest ideas. And this song is another bold statement, and it shows the band stretching their musical muscles a little bit more. It's a slower-paced song, and it's one of the only mathcore-styled songs that I would actually describe as relaxing. There's a slower melodic part in the middle that makes me feel like I'm sitting on the side of the road on a hot summer day eating an ice cream cone. Anybody else get that vibe? Nope, just me. What's interesting about the B-side of this album is that the band starts kind of alternating between super heavy and aggressive songs, just like on side A, to the more musically complex and mood-setting kind of songs. And this isn't strictly limited song to song, because predictably the next song, I used to hate cell phones, but now I hate car accidents, starts off as another rager, with Josh even dipping into some super gutter death metal style vocals and at the start of this song it seems like it's following in the footsteps of the shotgun message when it suddenly shifts into a slower pace with this like choir of background vocals 
And it kind of holds like that before going into one of my favorite breakdowns on the album with Josh screaming, you're walking to Wall Street in a straight jacket, which is pure gold. Don't know what it means, but it's pure gold. With this song, they sort of incorporated both styles into one song, which leaves them no choice but to restore the balance with another rager. And that rager is called, It Was As If The Dead Men Stood On The Air. Like the shotgun message before it, this song clocks in at a tight one minute, 30 seconds, and it holds nothing back. This is hands down the heaviest and most unhinged moment on this entire record. Just blunt riffs, unpredictable vocal patterns, and at one point, it sounds like somebody just started rubbing their guitar strings all over the front grill of their amp. It was wild. The Human Face Divine takes up the number 10 slot on this album and is, in my opinion, the most well-rounded song on Bless the Martyr, featuring a really good mixture of slower paced but heavy riffs with unpredictable spats of chaos. This is the first and only song on this album to feature creepy hand clapping over guttural death metal vocals. Which is kind of disappointing now that I say it out loud. Does anybody have any recommendations for an album that features hand claps over gutturals for like a whole record? Send me an email. Let me know. And finally, we arrive at the album closer, organized beyond recognition. The song starts off with some discordant strumming with Josh screaming white tie, black jacket, and I ain't seen you in a while. The pace picks up slightly, but it never quite matches the intensity of the rest of the album. This is a pure epic Norma Jean closer with tons of melody thrown in, which is a nice contrast to everything else that they've had going on. While some of the previous songs had melody, they were melodic in the same way that like semi-sweet chocolate chips are sweet. And on this song, the melody and epic feeling it creates are the whole point. By the end of it, you get the feeling that you've just experienced something super profound. And in the next course of this meal, I will try to explain why it feels that way. Course three, emotional impact. An album's emotional impact is one of the hardest things to quantify. It's the most intangible aspect of any work of art and sometimes can vary wildly from the artist's original intention. And in Norma Jean's case, I think the emotional impact of the record as a whole was premeditated and executed exactly as planned. On first impression alone, you might describe a record like Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child as only eliciting one emotion, and that would be rage. But if you look below the surface, you might also find traces of confusion, anxiety, invincibility, sadness, triumph, fear, and finally, hopefulness. And I think that the band achieves this rich variety of feelings due to very meticulous sequencing. With the first two songs, I think the feelings that we're intended to feel are those of confusion, aggression, and that almost nauseating feeling of consuming too many energy drinks on an empty stomach. The purpose of these two songs in particular is to simply grab our attention and keep us engaged enough to ride the energy wave all the way until Memphis will be laid to waste, where the band starts to pepper in some of the more semi-melodic elements to give us a chance to catch our breath a bit between these onslaughts. And Memphis is where you start hearing what I've been calling these more epic sounding Norma Jean riffs. Josh's repetition of one-liners over consistently changing riff patterns cements into our brains that what Josh is saying is important 
and we should be paying attention. And this promise of lyrical significance is the hook that keeps us listening no matter what direction the songs take in the future. When we start understanding what Josh is saying on repeat listens, our brains recognize those patterns. And this adds even more credibility to what Josh is saying, even though a lot of the lines, when taken on their own, can seem somewhat nonsensical. I mean, what is bullets by her mouthful enemy on your six actually mean? I guess you'd have to ask Josh because I, I really don't know. And the real ear trap is when Josh starts delivering some of those one-liners over more melodic stylings. Those are the kind of songs you're going to find on side B of the record. Sometimes it's our mistakes that make for the greatest ideas is a perfect example of this, where the song is more laid back and melodic, but Josh is still screaming just as intensely as he was on the heavier songs. The combination of his passionate screams and more melodic and epic riffs adds even more emotional richness to the songs. It leaves us feeling like we just heard something of great significance and that makes us feel smart if we think that we get what Josh is trying to say in each song. And to better illustrate what I mean, these are the ways each of the songs impact me emotionally. The entire world is counting on me and they don't even know it makes me feel confused, afraid, and disoriented. When I'm feeling particularly meatheaded, I also get a feeling of power and invincibility just from the overall impact of the heavy riffs, the deep vocals, and all of that. The feeling of fear comes from the unrelenting repetition early on in the song, where on first listen, it sounds like they are just going to repeat that segment forever. Face to face, or face face, elicits feelings of fear and frustration. Maybe I don't know who she is from She Simply Will Not Die, but the frustrated scream from the start of the song makes this song feel like you're trying to push a boulder up a hill with all the power that you have, but it just doesn't budge. It simply will not budge. Memphis Will Be Laid to Waste presents feelings of distrust with the way the song shifts its pace and vocal styles multiple times within the song, like it's trying to fake you out. And that's important because fakeness is kind of the primary theme of the song. Aaron Weiss's delivery at the end of the song is just a huge string of words that when read out on paper form a bittersweet narrative of regret and longing for the attention of others. Meanwhile, Josh just keeps screaming fashion over and over and over again to reinforce this song's theme of how fakeness and putting on a good front is no substitution for true beliefs that have real substance. Creating something out of nothing only to destroy it feels melancholic at the start with its use of discordant melody and screams about strings of blood. As the song builds up and leads into its awesome breakdown, we start to feel empowered again by the strength of just the riffs and the screams. Pretty soon I don't know what, but something is going to happen is a slow burn and it feels like impending dread, like a slow moving zombie in a classic horror film. It's not the fact that there's something following you that's the scary part. It's the fact that no matter how long you run and try and hide, that that shambling horror is going to find you eventually. All 15 minutes of this song work toward the goal of making us feel anxious and jumpy, ready for anything to pop out musically and surprise us. The shotgun message is the inevitable anxiety attack that the last song was leading up to. 
It's reactionary. It's a huge cathartic outpouring of emotions. It's how we feel when our emotions are bigger than we are and we just explode in multiple directions at once. Sometimes it's our mistakes that make for the greatest ideas, makes the listener feel relaxed and cooled off. An exercise in keeping our wits about us, but still delivering our message with a bold intensity. I used to hate cell phones and now I hate car accidents makes us feel powerful and aggressive again, but this time in a more calculating and controlled manner. Probably a feeling that we started picking up on the last song. I love the way these two songs work together in sequence. This feeling of controlled chaos is beautifully torn apart again in It Was As If The Dead Men Stood Upon The Air, where feelings of pure frustration boil over into a chaotic frenzy of unregulated freakouts. The human face divine mostly recovers from the spastic freakout on the last song and returns to the more controlled chaos of cell phones. But this time, there's this air of uncertainty and doubt creeping around in the song, with its spirally guitar lines and creepy descents into guttural vocals and creepy hand clapping. I know, I'm sorry, I just can't let that go. And the end of the song leaves us on an uncertain and anxious note with some dubious piano sort of lightly peppered underneath the whole sequence and finally organized beyond recognition extinguishes all of this anxiety fear rage and frustration while still present within the first minute and a half of the song this soon gives way to melodic noodling that builds on itself over and over again and it just brings a feeling of relief that relief transitions into a stronger resolve and a greater sense of self-awareness. And by the time the song's over, you're left feeling downright hopeful with all of those negative feelings on the record successfully expelled from your body. It's very rare that a single record is able to address everything a frustrated teenager could be feeling at any given moment of the day so accurately. And this factor is a major reason why this record took off like it did which I'm going to talk about in the final course, but I'll be remiss if I didn't discuss how this record impacted me on a personal level. So clear the table because now it's time for the next course. Course four, personal significance. To say that this album had a profound effect on me as a teenager would be a massive understatement. When I first heard Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child as a 16-year-old high schooler, I'll admit that I could barely comprehend it. It was super harsh, and at the time it seemed unmelodic and not pleasing to the ear in any capacity. That story I told earlier about showing it to Buddy was pretty indicative of how my peers reacted to it as well. It's just that at that time, I was getting so burned out on the bands that I've been listening to for years. Rap rock bands like P.O.D. and PAX 217 just weren't cutting it for me anymore. And I wanted to hear more powerful screams, louder riffs, more intense drumming, but the process of familiarizing oneself with extreme music can often take a bit of time. The other two records that I bought the same day were a little bit better at slowly easing me into the pool, but it was eventually Bless the Martyrs' Take No Prisoners approach that ended up winning me over the most in the end. As I sat in my room and I listened to this record over and over again, sometimes with distractions and sometimes not, I started picking out my favorite one-liners from the album, and it was only a few months before I could call out all of my favorites, and those favorites were Set It All Ablaze, She Simply Will Not Die, Bullets By Her Mouthful, Enemy On Your Six, Now You're Doing the Waltz With Your Murderer, 
Christ is not a fashion fleeting away. My war is not with someone like you. Like bringing a knife to a gunfight. I'm stabbed by grace and slinging blood. And the world can see what I've got. Then let's all have a good look. A fortunate one. You're walking to Wall Street in a straight jacket. My God, rain down fire. White tie, black jacket, and I ain't seen you in a while. You're slick, a slick and polished mess. And because I had no actual idea what most of those lines really meant, my teenage brain would seek to apply those lines to nearly every situation I found myself in. And like a lot of teenagers who listen to strange music, I started to feel this sense of ownership over the album. Eventually, poserism, you know, listening to an album that I don't really understand but acting like I like it, actually turned into real appreciation for what Norma Jean was doing on this album. I started feeling like it was this special gem that only I understood. And while I thought that I was just adding to my self-proclaimed cool guy persona, what I was really doing was simply adopting the vibe of this album and applying that vibe to my everyday interactions with other people. When I understood a lyrical reference, I'd enjoy showing a song to somebody and then explaining to them what I thought this song meant. And this album has the potential to create the kind of person who makes a one-hour podcast and YouTube video about an album that came out 21 years ago. And even now in 2023, I have to admit that the lyrics are so intentionally vague and open-ended that you could apply almost any perceived meaning to any of these songs, which is why I didn't focus too much on the specific song meanings in this episode. If you want to hear me try and stumble through some of Josh's lyrics, go back and listen to my episode on the first album by The Chariot that I did last season. Not only did this album affect my teenage pretension, but I found it influencing the way that I interacted with other people. As a youth group kid, I was obsessed with the line, Christ is not a fashion fleeting away, and that inspired me to talk about God with other people in a more blunt and assailing way without using fancy words and descriptions. Just like the album, I wanted my interactions with other people to be immediate and sometimes shocking. Which sounds super cool on paper, but in practice, I'm sure it was actually really obnoxious and off-putting. And I just wore my emotions on my sleeve. Nobody had to guess what I was thinking or feeling about any given situation. And not only did this album have a direct effect on my personality, but the way I dressed also started to change. Up until I started listening to bands like Zayo and Norma Jean, I was a new metal kid. So that means Jinko jeans and giant Adidas shirts, big Hot Topic pants with blue highlights and plastic chains hanging from the back. And that was until I bought the CD-DVD combo called This Is Solid State Volume 4, which had like professionally shot music videos and then live videos of the current lineup of Solid State Records bands. And when I saw the video of Norma Jean performing, suddenly I was a lot more into tight jeans, black shirts and belt buckles and i swore at the time that it had nothing to do with the band but i'm a growing up now and i can confirm that that is in fact exactly what it was not only did i think that the way that they looked and dressed and carried themselves on stage was super cool but it was also a new way that i could dress that made me feel like i could stand out from the rest of the kids at school eventually buddy came around too and we were both all about norma jean together and at times, it felt like it was just us against the world. We had this super cool music that we felt belonged solely to us, and we were the only ones who got it. This record inspired us to check out other bands that were also playing the chaotic style of metalcore that Norma Jean was laying down. And granted, our options were limited at the time because we were only listening to other Christian bands. 
If not for this, we would have never gotten into bands like Mortal Treason, Nodes of Ranvier, and Symphony in Peril. And without this record as a launching point, bands like The Chariot would never have caught on as well as they did. And when I got a little bit older, I had this craving to hear an album that so profoundly affected me as much as Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child. And I'll be honest, I never found it. Not because I think this is the best album ever made, and as has been made clear to me by a lot of my listeners when I told them that I was talking about this record this week, it may not even be the best album with the band name Norma Jean on it. Sure, later on in life, I did discover bands like Converge, Training for Utopia, Coalesce, Botch, Cave-In, Dead Guy. And while I loved those bands and their catalogs as well, none of them had the profound effect on me that Bless the Martyr by Norma Jean did. It hit me at exactly the right time. And if I randomly found a genie in a bottle tomorrow and it told me it would grant me whatever wish I wanted, I would wish for financial security. But if I had a second, more personal wish, it would be to hear Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child for the first time again. It's that important to me. The chaotic and overwhelming nature of the album is unfortunately lessened for me over time, simply because I've listened to it so much that the songs just don't surprise me anymore. And while I say that this album felt like something only I had heard and only I understood, that couldn't be further from the truth. Because as I'm going to discuss in the final course of this meal, this record took its industry by storm and created a lasting legacy that continues even to this day. Course number five cultural significance and lasting impact. In my junior year of high school, I was part of this prayer group that met about 20 minutes before classes started every morning. And we would pray in a circle. And there was one particular day where we had just finished prayer. And I was in the middle of talking to my girlfriend at the time when I ended up cutting her off mid-sentence because I saw a kid walk into the front door of our high school wearing a Norma Jean hoodie. I was shocked because that wasn't a normal occurrence. So I took off like speed walking behind him and introduced myself, which probably caught him off guard a little bit. And I stood there and talked to him about Norma Jean for about half an hour. And the thing that threw me off the most, though, is that he wasn't a Christian metal fan. He didn't even know that Norma Jean was a Christian band. He said that he had just seen them play a few weeks ago in the summer and that they absolutely blew his mind. And he bought the hoodie and CD at the show. And this was one of my first indications that there was more to this album than it just being something me and Buddy were jamming. During that school year, my band Jelly Donut played a show called The Bash Strikes Back. And being as into Norma Jean as I was at the time, I had stopped singing entirely on the Jelly Donut songs. And I only screamed my lungs out. And our music didn't match that, but that didn't matter to me much at the time. And we were the only band on the bill that sounded like that. And it attracted some attention from kids who were into hardcore that I didn't already know. I'd always kind of kept a separation from the other heavy music fans at my school because I was one of the Christian youth group kids. And either they thought that they didn't like me or I thought that I didn't like them. It was just stupid high schooler thinking, honestly. But after playing that show and getting to know some of those guys, it turned out that a lot of them were huge Norman Jean fans. And I ended up making a ton of new friends from our appreciation of the band and of this album. I think the biggest takeaway for me, though, was that Norma Jean was making huge strides in the emerging metalcore scene that had been developing for years. There was a time where a Christian heavy band would not have been taken seriously by the audience at large. But now, 
things were different. It could have been the fact that bands like Norma Jean didn't really preach or evangelize its shows. And like I talked about earlier, Josh's lyrics were always pretty vague and hard to unravel anyway. But all of that emotional impact was still present, and this record was out there affecting people from all walks of life. Something that had initially made me sort of recoil back from it was starting to gain real ground with a lot of people. In a certain sense, I think I was behind the curve instead of being on the bleeding edge, and I credit a lot of that influence to the band's sense of hard work and dedication. Not only had they released one of the most important records of my life, but they had endured almost constant hardship since the record came out. This band had somehow fully recovered from a name change and a genre change, and it never slowed them down. Shortly after the release of the album, Josh stepped down as the vocalist of the band, and yet they still kept touring sometimes with a replacement vocalist, and sometimes they just performed instrumentally with kids from the crowd singing the songs. That kind of dedication endeared the band to thousands of people and carved out Norma Jean, an important spot, not only in Christian metalcore and hardcore, but in metalcore and hardcore in general. As their popularity grew, there seemed to be a surge in other Christian metalcore bands that were popping up everywhere all over the United States. And the effect was something that I would have never predicted in a million years. There was a period of time between 2003 and 2008 where a metalcore band had a higher chance of being a Christian band than not being one. And while we can't credit the entire rise of Christian metalcore to Norma Jean alone, there's no denying that they played an instrumental part in all of it. Of course, Norma Jean would endure throughout the years as the band members came and went. Corey Brandon would eventually replace Josh and bring about his own vision for the band over multiple releases, some of which went on to be some of my favorite albums of all time. However, even 21 years after release, the quickest way to get a crowd going at a Norma Jean concert is to play a song off of Bless the Martyr and Kiss the Child. doesn't say classic to you i don't know what will thank you guys for watching and listening my name is daniel terry and if you like this podcast please make sure to go back and listen to the 50 plus episodes i've made doing dft's dungeon on spotify or apple podcasts or wherever you get podcasts i'm certain that you're going to find something there that you enjoy this is the first time i've decided to make one of my episodes into a youtube video so if you guys would like me to keep doing that please let me know I'll see you all next time. Thanks again.